You're listening to KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told at the Kunehiri Northern Light United Church on September 12, 2023. Co-hosts for the evening were Jeffrey Smith and David Noon. The theme was sourdough. The profit recipient for the event was Cancer Connection. Live music was performed by Missouri Smythe. Okay, so let's go ahead. We got uh, seven storytellers. Our first is Eric Orofsky, who grew up in Montana thinking that he was going to be a photographer, but during a break in the midst of college, he became a baker. So welcome to the Mudroom stage. First story of the year, Eric Orofsky. Some of you uh, may not know this, but Jeff actually baked for me for a while, so he knows something about sourdough. It was 2010, and uh, I decided that I needed a break from my career in journalism, uh, also known as dropping out of college. And uh, I had had a really rough couple of years. I had worked on a couple of stories that really divided uh, the town of Missoula, Um, and I had received a couple of awards for it, but also earned a few death threats and decided that I wanted a career that maybe didn't get death threats. So I I looked around and I thought, you know, nobody gives bakers death threats. That seems like a good way to go. So I applied to all the bakeries in town, Uh, but it was 2010 and nobody was hiring. It was the peak of unemployment in Missoula, and there was not a single job posting. Um, Nobody was hiring. And so I applied to all the bakeries anyway. And after a while, not hearing anything back from any of my applications, I sat in in one of the bakeries I used to go to named Bernice's Bakery. And it's, you know, a little kind of corner classic American bakery. Has, you know, coffee and croissants and bread. And I walked up to the counter and said, hey, I turned an application. Uh, I would just like to check with the manager, see if you guys have any positions. And she said, he's not available, but I'll let him know. So I showed up the next day and asked the same question and got the same answer. And I kept coming back day after day after day. And after two weeks, uh, I asked the same question I'd been asking. And the cashier kind of looked and she goes, he's here. And the manager peeks up from behind the cake and says, if I interview you, will you leave me alone? (laughs) My career was off to a great start. We sat down the interview and somehow got sidetracked from bakery and started talking about pierogies. Um, And uh, I don't know whether it was the pierogi talk or whether he saw something in me, but Scott was the first uh, person to take a chance on me and hired me. It was uh, an overnight shift, laminating croissants by hand, uh, 
which would, you know, was typically about an eight-hour shift, and we'd produce about 300 croissants overnight uh, as, as a person. Um, I worked there for maybe a month. I had started to get it down, and by this time, I got a call from another bakery, the, the rival bakery, Le Petit Autre. And I decided, well, you know, it's a new career. I better just cram it all in as hard as I can. So I started working for them full time too. And uh, it was a, you know, pretty rough schedule. I would start at 3 p.m. and work until 10 p.m. at Le Petit, and then I'd work from 10 p.m. until 6 a.m. at uh, at Bernice's. Um, but I was learning a lot, you know. Whereas Bernice's was utter chaos, a total, a whole bunch of people making all sorts of things. I was a little shielded from because I was overnight, I was by myself. But I didn't really have anybody to learn from. Where at Le Petit was a very well-oiled machine. It was very clean, very smooth, um, and everybody there had infinitely more experience than I did. And after six months of working really hard there, I finally had a review and the, the head baker said, well, you have a really good eye for color which in the bakery world means you aren't very good at everything else. And so I decided I was going to work a lot harder, and I made my first sourdough. And the first key to sourdough is adding water, which uh, oftentimes in bakery we like to use metaphor, and water is the base. It's neutral. It doesn't really have any uh, microbes in it or the microbes that are in there are very well known. They're not very exciting in terms of sourdough culture. But water is also turbulent. And so when you add your water, you want to make sure that it's at the temperature that you want for making your sourdough, because it's really the ingredient that you can control most. And so I took this knowledge and started making everything I could and experimenting at home and learning everything and realizing that I needed to start moving other places and learning from other people. And so I moved around, all around Montana and worked at a number of different bakeries before uh, finally getting a job uh, in McMurdo Station, Antarctica as a baker. And every place I went, I made a new sourdough. I started from scratch. To make a sourdough, you need your water, and then you add flour, and that's all you need. You let it sit, and it takes time. Now, when I got to McMurdo, you aren't allowed to bring culture with you, and much to the begrudge of all my other bakers, they were pretty upset by this because they couldn't bring any of their prized sourdoughs with them. And so we were talking one night and uh, decided that we needed to start a sourdough because there wasn't one down there. And we did the same thing that we had done every other place. Set out the water, set out the flour, and it would mold every time. Never would develop into sourdough. Wouldn't bubble, wouldn't have any activity. So we try again, try a new spot, we try a different amount of flour, try a different amount of water, nothing, didn't happen. And so the problem that we realized is that Antarctica is very, very dry, like often 5 to 10% humidity, very, very low, and was just not enough for sourdough to do well. And we realized that the kitchen was very sterile, and all of our flour that came in was pasteurized, which the only reason that sourdough develops is because flour, depending on what grain you have, already has microbes in it. So 
we realized that we were going to have to find microbes some other way. And we had to find moisture. And we were sitting in the bar one night. And we realized that every time somebody would open the bar, a cloud would leave. We didn't think it was going to survive in the bar, though. So we found the next best place, which was the gym. <laughs> yeah. We put our flour, put our water in there. Sure enough, it starts to bubble. The other ingredients that are important in sourdough is that it turns out the age of the sourdough doesn't really matter. I know that's a little heresy in, in bakery world, but genetically it doesn't make any difference. Flavor-wise, it doesn't make a huge difference. What really matters is the people because it turns out that the microbiome that's in a sourdough starter is almost identical to that of the baker. <laughs> so for better or for worse, when you think of whatever your favorite sourdough is, <laughs> just know that it really has to have a person behind it. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Molly McCormick. Molly is a fourth generation Douglasite and comes from a long line of sourdoughs. Her great grandfather, Richard McCormick, came to Treadwell in 1885 and worked as a blacksmith for the Treadwell mine. He was the first and only mayor of Treadwell. Molly's grandpa was born in Treadwell and Molly's dad, Jim McCormick, was born in Douglas in 1930. Molly is a four year cancer survivor and a member of the Cancer Connection Board. She lives in Douglas with her husband in the same house that her grandmother purchased in the 1930s. Molly and Arnold have three kids, two of which still live in Juneau, and the third found drier weather in Albuquerque. Please welcome Molly. I'm gonna tell three different stories of my dad to kind of show how he was a sourdough. And he also has more than nine lives. Um, my dad was six years old when most of Douglas burned down. The fire is highest in the winter time when the taku winds are blowing. And the houses were really close together and the wind would just fan the fire from the coal and embers would land on the wood roofs and the fire would take off. Uh, they had a sound system where they'd let the whole city know to come help put out the fire. He remembers his dad putting water on the house to save the house. Sometimes the water freezes during the winter too. That's probably why my dad was a member of the Douglas Volunteer Fire Department for 30 years. My dad bought Douglas Trucking and Douglas Oil Heat in 1955. And I remember our party line ringing at night and somebody was out of oil. So it seems like he was working 24 seven to keep houses heated. And if people couldn't pay, he knew, he knew they were good for it. After he retired and sold the business, he decided he wanted to gillnet. And he bought the Tilly, that's his boat, and he fished up Taku for 25 years. The best story I remember 
was my husband and I lived down the channel across from Sheep Creek. And my dad, every Sunday, would, on his way to fishing the taku, he would blow his horn, come in close to shore, and throw the Sunday paper on the rock. And, and the grandkids would wave to Grandpa, and then he would go on his way and go fishing. And um, I, I remember spending time with him out fishing. I loved our time together. Um, one time, the weather, the engine was acting up. And so he, he was down in the engine room, and I was driving the boat, and I was super nervous because it was choppy, so you couldn't see the corks from the gill nets, and I didn't want to run over a gill net, right? So, um, and he's doing enough cursing for us both out of the engine room, and um, he could fix anything. I remember the salmon derbies, we'd go out. It, that's when they did the mass start for the salmon derbies, and he would always get us back in. Now, if my uncle took us out in my dad's boat, we would always get a tow back. Um, <laughs> And we would go water skiing at the end of Marmion in the cove without wetsuits, and we were used to my dad working on the boat. Um, my dad, he was a Marine in the Korean War, and after that he went to uh, diesel mechanic school in Long Beach so he, he could fix Jerry Weeks things his way to make it work. My dad learned how to fly at 40, and... Um, he got ratings to land on pontoons, so he bought his first plane in Anchorage to fly it back to Juneau. He normally follows the road and um, Lynn Canal and get to Juneau. Well, taken off the lake in Anchorage, he almost didn't get up off the lake because he didn't set the flaps to take off. But he made it to Juneau. There's one life. And so this really funny trip, a super cub, is really, it's made for two people, two seats, really narrow, small, and he decided one summer that we would fly down to visit my grandparents in Vancouver, BC. So my dad's in the captain's seat, my friend Linda and I are in the passenger seat, and my brother is back in the cargo area. We traveled really light, and it was a three-day trip, a can for potty, and we were going through customs, all four of us, hi, in a two-seater plane, they let us through. And I remember to this day, my dad was so nervous landing at the international airport. He was landing on a lake there, and when he started to go down to land, the geese all took off, and he was just worried they would fly into a jet engine. But it was all, it was all good. <laughs> we survived. Um, and the one last thing there was at 75, he went with his good friend Bob Johnson, and they went down to buy his last airplane in Seattle. And they take off, and they're going the wrong direction. They don't know which direction, but they're going east. <laughs> Two senior citizens lost up in the air. <laughs> and what do they do? They find a freeway to follow, and they found that they followed the freeway, and finally they got headed north. Um, uh, my dad just really, he, he took our kids flying to see bears on Admiralty, fishing at Young's Lake off the pontoons, and he just loved to hunt and fish and hunt for deer and moose.
Now, this, this last story probably used up all of his nine lives and more. Um, in 1954, he was on a crab boat outside of Kodiak, and the captain went upstairs at 8.30. The boat was listing. It sprung a leak, and it capsized. My dad kicked off his boots, went underwater, cut off the lifeboat. They all three got in the lifeboat, and they had to bail the water out with their hands. This is in March. It's freezing. It's blowing 60. And, and then there's no paddles, so they had to use their arms and paddle to shore 1,500 feet. They got to shore. They had boughs to cover them, under them, and they put the boat over top of them to protect from the wind. And after about two days, the captain gave my dad his boots to go see if there's anything on the island. He found a shelter. It had matches and extra clothes, so they moved in there. And my dad told me that he was tired of eating raw clams and mussels. Now, they were desperate, and they weren't taking any chances. They built a 40-foot SOS sign, and they sent up smoke signals. They were saved. Rescuers saw the smoke signals um, that used up all nine lives. In 2010, my dad passed away of prostate cancer that metastasized to his bones. I miss him a lot. Our youngest son and his wife have an eight-month-old son. He is sixth generation. And even though they don't live in Douglas, they live in Juneau. Thank you. So next up, uh, also first-time Mudrooms storyteller after a long absence from Juneau, uh, having left here in 2007. Uh, Kevin Myers is back. He's the author of, of two books, two novels, Hidden Falls, which came out in 2020, and Need Blind Ambition, which just came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, he's a former stand-up comic and comedy writer. He's appeared on Comedy Central, uh, or on the Comedy Channel, rather. Uh, he was featured on 2020. I need details about that. I'm assuming it wasn't one of those serial killer <laughs> documentaries, but maybe I don't know you all that well, Kevin. Uh, and he appears in the Comedy Store documentary for a humiliating five seconds. His essay, The Power of Compassion, aired nationally on NPR's This I Believe series, uh, and he's one of my closest friends, Kevin Myers. Welcome. So, boy, I, I, I first moved to Alaska in 1995, uh, fell in love, and got married. Uh, <laughs> I've already messed up. Sorry, I messed that up. I came to Alaska for the first time, fell in love with Alaska. <laughs> and then that year, I also got married, <laughs> is what I meant to say. So yeah, we actually, we really did. We, we came up here in 95, we got engaged out at the Eagle Glacier, uh, and, and I fell in love with the place. I just, I just, I don't really know what it was. You know, I grew up uh, on the East Coast in New England, um, you know, and I came from a family of uh, fishermen and alcoholics and criminals, and... Um, <laughs> Somehow, when I got to Alaska, it just felt right. I don't, <laughs> um, it's like, I am home. <laughs> um, 
So when we uh, so when we got back up here, we had uh, 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 rescued a, a uh, racing greyhound, so a retired uh, uh, greyhound named Ross. And um, you know, if you're thinking, you know, oh my God, that that's a horrible breed to bring to Alaska. Well, yeah, you'd be absolutely right. Uh, he was, he was, he, he it, it, it did not suit him well, uh, and he was also kind of an oddity, right? He had no fur, he had no, you know, sort of body fat, and so we, we, you know, put him in this bright red jacket that made even more of a spectacle out of him, you know, and everybody would point and want to come over and ask us why on earth we brought him to Alaska, you know, it felt like you know walking an ostrich to work, you know, in the morning. Um, but, and he also, he was uh, sort of, he was docile. Uh, so like when he was uh, uh, with people, you know, he was, he was, he was great. Like he, you, you would never know. Uh, uh, but he was also, when you left him alone for about five minutes, uh, he, he'd kind of lose his mind. Uh, and he did tens of thousands of dollars worth of damage to cars and homes and boats. And, and yeah, we, and we, we kept him. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so so oh, and he had all these vocalizations, right? So you know, he when he was hungry, you know, he'd kind of go, oh, you know, and then when he had to go out, he was kind of, oh. <laughs> and then when he had to go out, but he wanted you to stop the rain from falling, <laughs> he'd go, oh. <laughs> so. Anyway, one day it was super early in the morning, that kind of really, you know, that early where you're kind of suspect of anybody else who's out at that time in the morning, right? Um, we had just dropped the, the family off at the, uh, at the ferry, and we were coming back, uh, uh, and, you know, we were near DeHart's, and he did the... So, you know, I pulled over, and we went into DeHart's to, to let him relieve himself. And uh, I was walking over by the railing where you can overlook the boats, and I saw this sort of glowing red something. I wasn't really sure what it was, and then I smelled pipe smoke, uh, and then uh, I saw the, the crustiest, most sour, sour dough I had <laughs> ever seen in my life. You know, there was this old guy. He was, I mean, I call him old. I mean, he was somewhere between 55 and... 155, like, like maybe he was born in the 20th century. I wasn't really sure. It seemed just as likely that on some dark, moonless night, he rose up from the muskeg and wandered, <laughs> wandered into town and started bartending at the Alaskan, you know? <laughs> so uh, anyway, this, this guy, he was just personified Alaska, right? It was like he was born in a halibut jacket and, you know, with the knowledge of how to fix, you know, small engines. Um, it's a, I, I was just sort of in awe of him. He just sort of personified Alaska. And I just knew that whatever anachronistic idea he had of manhood, was going to be exactly how I judged myself the entire time I lived in Alaska, right? Like if I couldn't open the pickle jar, it would be this guy just, you know, in my mind's eye, just kind of rolling his eyes and shaking his head. And Anyway, he came over to us and I immediately put my hands in my pockets because I was afraid he'd see how uncalloused they were. <laughs> 
so anyway, so yeah, so he, he looked down at Ross and he said, uh, is that a dog? <laughs> I, I confirmed that it indeed was a dog. And he said, yeah, it looks like a, looks like a llama bedded down a deer. I've, I've heard nothing wrong yet, yeah. <laughs> you know? And then he asked me, he said, you know, are you married? I'm like, oh boy, where's this going? Uh, and I said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm married. He says, your, your wife like it here? I said, yeah, yeah, she, she actually moved up here for her job, and she loves it. He said, well, that's good, because, you know, Alaska's, you know, pretty good for guys and dogs, but not so good for women and horses. <laughs> I had so many questions, but, <laughs> but I found it better not, not to ask them, so I just kind of nodded and, and, and walked away. Uh, and, you know, as Dave mentioned, I just moved back here, and I haven't uh, thought about that guy, really, since, since I, was, I was back. Uh, but I've been doing a lot of thinking about, you know, that sort of voice in your head. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I kind of feel like you know, coming back to Alaska has really been, been great. Uh, and I, I feel like, um, you know, home isn't necessarily uh, the place that you live. It's, it's that, that voice inside your head that tells you it's okay to calm down and be yourself. And uh, it feels great to be home. Thank you. Uh, our next storyteller is Rebecca Braun. Rebecca is a longtime Juno resident. Her joys include alpine blueberries, board games, mountains in all seasons, and fall evenings on the couch. She thanks you all for getting off your couch to join us tonight. Please welcome Rebecca. Well, I think I didn't realize when I signed up for this on Friday, the cancer connection was a beneficiary, which is a nice coincidence because I've had breast cancer and eyeball cancer. And so my right side is just fully defective. Um, anyway, but this is a story about sourdough. So before I moved to Alaska, I lived in this co-op in my East Coast college. And for those who don't know what a co-op is, at least where I went to school, it was where the weird people accumulated. I can't really pretend I was weird. I'm not actually that cool. But um, I've always just liked being around weird people. So, you know, God bless Alaska, right? Um, so the co-op was home to 33 students. And one of them is sitting in the front row because she's visiting me. And we're roommates again for the first time after 30 years. Um, shout out to Margaret. So we did all our own cooking, which generally featured vegetable stews and enchanted broccoli forests and other variations on what my son calls hippie mush. We also did our own cleaning and food buying, and all of this was organized through a very complicated system of points to ensure that everyone did their share. So one day, I was doing weekly fridge cleanout for eight points. We had two large refrigerators, and in the back of one of them, on the bottom shelf, there was this large silver mixing bowl. And it looked like there was a piece of saran wrap that had kind of fallen in and was partially subsumed under this unidentifiable, writhing mass of mystery glop. 
So I pulled it out for further inspection. Its smell and provenance were distinctly dubious. I considered pretending I'd never seen it. I really had no idea what to do with it. But I got strong, pulled it out, poured the whole mess in the trash, rinsed the bowl and ran it through the Hobart, congratulating myself on a job well done. <laughs> Until the next day when a note appeared on the whiteboard. Now this was very early days of the internet. It really wasn't in existence. Instead, we had a massive whiteboard on the dining room wall. And on this whiteboard, someone wrote, who threw out my sourdough starter? And under it, in smaller writing, they wrote, I drove six hours each way to James Beard's test kitchen to bring back this sourdough starter. <clears throat> now, I don't know, but Beard on Bread was kind of our Bible in the co-op. I did not know what sourdough starter was, but I knew I had just thrown it away. So I confessed to the guy. We'll call him Matt, not to protect his identity, but because I don't remember his name. <sighs> he proceeded to have a small temper tantrum. I was trying to be apologetic, but, you know, he wasn't being the greatest. It wasn't labeled, I said. James Beard, he said. Um, it, had, it had saran wrap in it, I said. Are you an idiot, he said. At least that, that's how it went in my memory. I felt like I'd killed his firstborn child. Fast forward a few years and I've moved to Alaska. And at some inevitable point after you've moved to Alaska, someone gives you sourdough starter. I put it in my fridge and ignored it. It turned black and separated, and I threw it away. This might have happened more than once. Sourdough for me was synonymous with failure. Then about two years ago, my friend Emily gave me some sourdough starter. I was tempted to reveal my checkered past, but she didn't ask. She just gave it to me like it would be the answer to a problem I didn't know I had, and it was because she also gave me this little index card, color-coded, you know, with pictures and arrows. And this was a dummy-proof sourdough bread recipe and, crucially, instructions for the care and keeping of your sourdough starter. Exactly what you do, which is what I need, apparently. In fact, Turns out that's the difference between using your sourdough and letting it die, a slow, miserable death in the door of your refrigerator. So this time I was redeemed, maybe because by now I had two children and keeping kids alive is actually good practice for keeping sourdough starter alive. <laughs> so these days I make sourdough bread, I make sourdough waffles, I do it all. I travel with my sourdough starter so I can make bread or waffles for whoever I'm visiting. And then I offer them my starter with instructions, if they want it. So I'm Jewish. And in the Jewish tradition, we do this thing called overanalyze. We interpret. We reinterpret. We argue. We pontificate. So when I signed up to do this story, as I mentioned last Friday, I started thinking, as the rabbis of old might, what is the meaning of this sourdough story? I think it's a story about shame. I don't know about the rest of you, but I tend to let my mistakes germinate into shame and fear. 
I internalize and turn small, arguably small, failures into metaphors for catastrophic, endemic, and irrevocable personable, personal inadequacies, which makes this also a story of redemption, because now I can and I do sourdough. So unless you've done something maybe like commit murder, shame is probably an overreaction. It's a fear reaction, and it's limiting. So my advice is throw out your shame, not your sourdough. But if you do throw out your sourdough, that's okay. You can just come to me. I'll give you some whenever you're ready. Can you imagine a piece of the universe more fit for princes and kings? You're listening to Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO Juno at 104.3 FM. These stories were told on September 12, 2023. The theme was sourdough. Do you have a story you'd like to tell? To find out the dates and themes for our upcoming shows, visit us at mudrooms.org. Okay, fifth storyteller of the evening, uh, a veteran last year, Taylor Beard. Uh, Taylor was born and raised in a ranching family in the far north of Utah. Evidence can still be found in the fact that she says things like howdy and y'all. Brought to Juno in 2017 by her husband Ben's career, she finds the rain perfect for spending days weaving words into tales and is mere minutes from finishing her first novel. Thank the gods, she says. That's a direct quote, not me, ad-libbing. Outside of writing, she and her family enjoy most any activity that can be done in nature, although she can often be found gorging herself on good food, music, and companionship. Welcome back to the stage, Taylor. Okay, I think everybody's had an awkward moment, right? We've all had those. I've had way too many of them where I either walked away thinking, well, that was fun, or damn, that was really embarrassing, or my personal favorite of why does this always seem to happen to me? So I started my first novel a few months before the pandemic hit, and with that raging and my children in my face 24-7, I found I was really struggling with coming up with witty, humorous dialogue for my writing. And then I realized that all of these awkward moments where I stood there thinking, why me, universe? Why, why are you doing this to me? That this was the universe giving me fodder to write about. So tonight I'd like to beguile you with two such instances of me misinterpreting a conversation based on my ability to just vastly misunderstand the accent of the speaker. Yeah, so when I was 14, I had the pleasure of traveling around Spain and Morocco with a group from my high school. And being the studious nerd that I am, I decided to read up everything I could so that I could absorb the experience. So this included the Tales of the Alhambra by Washington Irving, 
which if you haven't read it, it is a beautiful book and I totally recommend it. Be forewarned, there are a lot of tales about eunuchs. <laughs> and being pubescent, I didn't know what that was and had to figure it out to my utter horror. So, you know, I was like, what? Okay, so after cruising around the Alhambra, we crossed the Strait of, of Gibraltar and headed into Morocco. And as we're weaving along the cliffs, our tour bus driver started pointing out various landmarks as we passed. On our left is the Eunuch Palace. What? Did he just, is that what he just said? Yeah. And on our, on our right is the Eunuch Marketplace. It's over 500 years old. Why did they, why did they have their own marketplace? <laughs> and here's the Eunuch Park and the Eunuch Beach and the Eunuch School. Jeez, man, they really do not mess around here. Right? So having just emerged from all of the eunuch history of the Alhambra and Moorish Spain, at this point I'm totally convinced that if you're checking a box in Morocco, it's either female, male, or eunuch. And I'm also wondering how there's so many children running around. Because like, if they need their own marketplace and beach and school, I'm pretty sure that there's not enough dudes with the adequate hardware to get the job done. Right? So our tour bus driver continues, you know, delightfully noting the mass segregation of eunuchs from everyone else alive. And here is the eunuch armory. Right, okay. I guess eunuchs can't use the same weapons as everyone else. Totally makes sense, right? Like if somebody cut off my balls, my imaginary balls, I would want revenge on everybody alive. Okay, so that totally makes sense. And here is the eunuch palace, or I'm sorry, the eunuch mosque, which looks onto the eunuch mountain. I'm, mountain, they have their own mountain. And then it clicked. Oh, he's been saying unique this entire time. I'm up to speed now, all right? So I have no room to judge this man at all. Because like two days earlier, while sitting down to dinner, I tripped and shot my water across the table. And as the waiter came to help me, I, was, I thought I was going to say, I'm very embarrassed. Can I have a virgin daiquiri? And what I actually said was, I'm very pregnant, and I need a daiquiri because I'm a virgin. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, this man was winning at his second language. So then, of course, you know, at this point, Morocco was far more intriguing when I figured out that all the men still retained their berries and not just their twigs. <laughs> so a few years later when I was in college, I found myself in a very similar situation. I had just started dating this really good looking Kiwi from the North Island. Yep, exactly. And I'm about to butcher your accent. It's gonna happen. Um, he think Chris Hemsworth hot, but better with green eyes, and he was really funny. So, of course, my college girl confidence is like, why are you dating me? But I managed to maintain a smidgen of chill at this point. So I showed up to pick him up for dinner. It was our fourth date, and we were headed to a fairly popular restaurant. So I wasn't that surprised when he told me that our reservation wasn't for another hour. And he said to me, no big deal, we'll just have a beer and then head out. 
And I'm like, sure, whatever. As long as I get to stand in this man's godlike presence, I'm completely fine with anything. So he rolls into the kitchen, grabs two beers, hands me one, takes a nice long pull off of his, and then looks at me point blank in the face and asks, right, would you like to sit on my dick then? And I don't know how I didn't drop my beer. It paused halfway to my mouth, which was fully hanging open at this point, like, because did he actually just ask me that? I mean, I know it's our fourth date, my dude, but that seems a little forward. And then I kind of had to wonder if he had telepathic powers because the dude was hot and it had already crossed my mind a few times. So there's that. So after a long, awkward pause of me gaping at him and him giving me a single raised brow, I decided to clarify. You you want me to sit on your dick? Yes. No, no, my dick, my dick. Uh, not, Not my, I mean, I would. And then he just stuffed the beer back in his mouth and drained the whole thing. Can I stop talking now? Sure. Would you like to sit on my veranda? (laughs) And without waiting for my answer, he turned and stiffly walked out onto his dick. So I followed him. Uh, Just out of curiosity, how do you say dick? And he tried to keep a straight face. Dick. (laughs) And I couldn't keep a straight face. That's not how you say dick. And as I was walking up here, I realized that both of my stories have to do with the same part of male anatomy. And I I guarantee somebody in the audience was sitting there going, does she realize that she's been talking about dicks this whole time? I I didn't, no. Yeah, I didn't, I swear. Um, So having said that, both of these stories, I've adapted them for my writing, which just goes to show that if you've let something ferment long enough, It tastes better when you revisit it. Thank you. Um, Our next storyteller is Jack, and Jack volunteered tonight. So I don't have a bio for him, but I made one up during intermission. Jack was born on the day of his namesake's inaugural address in 1961, where President Jack Kennedy said, Ask not what your country, what your story can do for you, ask what you can do with your story. Please welcome Jack. All right. So, uh, the first time I came to Idaho, uh, was to uh, be a student intern at for the Juno Public Schools. And uh, it did not go as planned. But uh, the way it got to that point was that I uh, was raised, I'm not an Alaskan, um, I'm visiting now, and I have visited here numerous times. I love it, maybe I'll move here someday, but I've got another life. At any rate, um, I grew up in the in the dreaded, uh, within the beltway of Washington, D.C. Um, it, I consider it dreaded because most people in, from Idaho, which is where I now live and have lived for 30 years, consider it worse than being from L.A. But at any rate, I, I went to Evergreen State College, and I was there, uh, transferred there, and I was uh, looking at 
uh, internship opportunities, saw the uh, opportunity to be an uh, educator for environmental education north of Juneau for the schools. So I, 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 I uh, applied and was accepted and I was happy to uh, get that uh, gig, but I didn't have a way to get up there. So I um, had heard that there are fishing boats that go from Seattle up to uh, Juneau, or at least to Ketchikan or so, and I walked the docks of the uh, uh, Seattle wharfs, but I was uh, getting turned down time and time again to uh, get on a boat. Within the week is what I needed to get up there in time. I finally uh, came upon something more like a freighter, where uh, I was directed to the pilot house and met a guy who uh, was the captain and he was more like uh, Brutus or whatever the name is in Popeye. And he said, kid, sure, you could work on the, on the boat for free passage and uh, you'll just be sitting in the engine room for, for a few days as we get up to Juneau. And, and I thought to myself, I, I kind of nodded and said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. But then we left and he said, uh, he had said that I should be back in a day to take off, and um, I just kept looking for other boats because I didn't want to go on that guy with that guy. And sure enough, within about 15 minutes, I came upon a, uh, a saner, and there was a, a crew of college students, and they were leaving pretty soon, and they were willing to take me. And I said, well, gee, can I uh, join you right away? And he said, yeah, right away, because we're leaving in an hour. And I said, well, all my stuff is over in the university district. I had, I had been staying with a friend of my sister's. And uh, they said, well, you better be back here in an hour if you want to have, if, if you want to go. So I ran out in the middle of the street, and I literally just waved in the middle of the street down the first car that came. I told them my story. I said, I've got to get on this boat. I'm trying to get to a job up in Juneau, and could you please help me? And he just looked at me, and he said, okay, get in. And I got in, and he took me all the way to the U District, and he took me all the way back, and I got on the boat, and we sailed up, and I was like, you know, I had offered to do anything. I'd, I'd wash dishes, I'd cook, I'd do, I'd do whatever I could. Um, and indeed, I did all of that, and I got to you know, be on the top of the pilot house in the, in, in the midnight hours when everybody else was sleeping. And, and this is back, as you can imagine, some years ago, because I was in college, when uh, they, they may have had radar, but they definitely were using the lights of, of uh, lighthouses. So looking at the charts, and it was just glorious. It was one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. I got up there, but as I said, the school district job didn't turn out. I get there, and indeed I'm there, and I'm supposed to be supervising high school students who are dealing with the younger kids at the camp, and I don't know, it's somewhere north of, north of Juneau. Um, but they ran out of money. Within a week, I was told by the school district that we were out of money, we're gonna have to close it down. And I said, you can't close it down. I, I, I'm here, I came all this way. And at least you've gotta pay my way back to get back to uh, uh, Olympia, give me a ride on the ferry, and they, they agreed to do that, but I didn't really want to just turn around. So I'm, you know how it is sometimes when you're 
at a loss, things have gone wrong, even though I'm in kind of paradise in Alaska because I'm here, I'm finally in here in Alaska, and yet I'm by myself, I don't know anybody. I call up my mom, mom, what's going on? She says, whoa, we just sold the house that you have grew up in, you won't have it to come home to anymore. And I go, oh, <laughs> you know, so everything's falling apart, and it's, uh, I uh, get a temporary job with a longshore outfit in uh, Juneau, just for temp work, and, and I'm, I'm staying at somebody's house, but I read the paper, the July 5th, and there it is. There's a, a, a photograph of a bunch of people carrying ice axes and being roped together, and they're marching through downtown Juneau, and they're, they, won, they won the prize for the best uh, July 4th outfit. And it was the Juno Icefield Research Program. And I go, what? That sounds like that's what I want to do. I want to be a glaciologist. What do I do? And I, I called up information, and I get the name of Maynard Miller, and I call them, and, and I talk to Joan, and, and Joan says, yeah, well, oh, you know, you might know Willie Unsold. And, and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I know him well. And uh, he's a college professor who, who worked on, uh, who, who did the Everest climb with, and Maynard was, who's the director of the JERP, of, of Juno Icefield Research Program. Um, he was the geologist for that expedition in 1963. So I, all of a sudden, have gotten an avenue to get on this Juno Icefield Research Program. And sure enough, I meet Maynard and he flies me I get a private flight over the Juneau Ice Field, over the Taku Glacier, down to Atlin. He tells me, you're just going to help to open up the camps. So yeah, I get to open up the camps. So sure enough, I go over there, and it's all of a sudden, you know, I've, I've gone from crying to my mother to being out on the ice field, and it's just heaven. So I, I sure enough, make my way back, you know, meeting these PhD candidates and, and geologists and, and make my way back to Juneau um, uh, by way of borrowing some skis and, and so forth and, and being towed behind these, uh, what are they called? These, those uh, bulldozers that are on treads, but they're really skis, but they're anyway. That, that, that was a wonderful uh, experience, and I finally did get my flight home, and I get, went back to Alaska two years later and had an even more powerful summer on the Alaska Peninsula, but that will save for another day. So thank you. Last story of the night, Emily Mesh. Uh, Emily is a... a also a veteran of the, the Mudrim stage. I think this is third or fourth story, which you can listen to. In fact, it's a good time to mention our website, mudrims.org. Uh, we have archives there of all past stories. Uh, and we also have sign-up forms and information about upcoming events. But uh, anyway, a friend recently reminded Emily uh, of her philosophy when it comes to making life decisions. Always do whatever will result in an interesting story. Her most recent such decision uh, was uh, choosing to run for city assembly, Juneau Assembly, in this upcoming election, uh, October 3rd. Make sure you get your ballots 
in by then. Uh, she doesn't want this to be a campaign speech necessarily, but if you happen to decide that you want to vote for her, that's perfectly all right. Welcome back, Emily. Our story starts in the year 2017 in Olympia, Washington, and our protagonist has recently moved from the other side of the planet because she was tired of working in mundane call center jobs. So it wasn't fantastic that in Olympia in 2017, she found herself working in a Verizon call center. But it's not all bad. She saw a job listing for a tour guide position in Alaska, and that sounds a lot more interesting than a Verizon call center. So she applied, and she had a job interview over Skype because it's 2017 and we don't know what Zoom is yet. Uh, and she got accepted. And she quit her job at the Verizon call center, and on April 24th, 2017, she got on a red eye from Seattle to Juneau and landed like 2 a.m., I don't remember. By the way, I'm the protagonist, it's me. Just want to be clear. The protagonist of the story is me. Um, I don't remember exactly what time, but it was early in the morning, like one or two or three, that era of time. Um, I went to baggage claim, grabbed like two pieces of luggage full of like all of my stuff, and I found a bench in the airport to try to sleep for a couple hours. Didn't work very well, but the attempt was made. Um, because Juno was not my final destination. The tour guide job that I had applied for was in Skagway, so I needed to wait for the cab drivers to wake up so I can get a ride to the ferry terminal. So as the light was just starting to come over the mountains, uh, I call a taxi and he picks me up. And as we're driving from the airport to the ferry terminal, I distinctly remember this discussion about mountains. And the taxi driver said that in the interior, the mountains are a lot taller than they are in Southeast, but you usually see them from far away. And in Southeast, they're right up in front of you. And because of that, they're more beautiful. And it wasn't like an opinion. It wasn't like, this is hometown pride. It, it, it was like it was a statement of fact. Uh, I believe 100% that the mountains in Juneau are more beautiful because they're closer than the mountains in the interior. Um, but he gets me to the ferry terminal, and uh, I run into a school teacher who lives in Skagway and is on her way home. And she teaches me how to use the luggage trolley because I hadn't seen that before. It's a very important piece of information. Uh, and then I board the Lacanti, and I make my way to the front of the vessel, and I sit down next to a window. Uh, and a few minutes later, a bald eagle flies right past the window that I'm sitting at. And I've been in Juno for like four or five hours and a bald eagle just flew past my window. This is amazing. Of course, first thing I do, grab my phone, open up Facebook, start typing with my thumbs. A bald eagle full of majesty and grace just flew past my window. And then I put my phone down and I tried to close my eyes, but I'm too excited. I've been up all night. I'm past the point of exhaustion. And like 10, 15 minutes later, I pick up my phone, and I find a notification from a friend. What the hell is a waggle? In my excitement and in my exhaustion, I had not written a bald eagle full of majesty and grace just flew past my window. What I wrote was a bald waggle full of majesty and grace <laughs> just flew past 
my window. And that's the moment that I mark the beginning of my journey as an Alaskan, because everything up to that point, landing at the airport, the conversation about the mountains, learning about the trolley, that's what a, a visitor does. But a local laughs at themselves. And that was the first time in Alaska that I had the opportunity to laugh at myself. Uh, and obviously, a couple hours later, the Lakanti would start its journey up the Lynn Canal, and it was six of the most beautiful hours of my life. It's a wonderful day. We landed in Skagway. I was uh, greeted by my future employer. She brought me to employee housing, where she had to kick out the person who was staying in my room because they were supposed to move out the day before, but they didn't. It's Skagway. It happens. Uh, I worked as a tour guide that whole first summer season, and by July, I had already decided I'm staying here. And I stayed a winter in Skagway, did a second summer season, and my second winter, for a couple of reasons, I decided to move to Juneau. Um, and since moving here, uh, I've lived downtown and in the valley. I have worked for the state and the city and for Gold Belt. I have volunteered my time with many different uh, community organizations. Uh, and I've worked to embed myself into the community here. And in turn, the community has embedded itself into the core of who I am. Um, this is my home. Um, but all of that starts in 2017, on the Lacanti, early hours of the morning, as I am marveling at the majesty and grace of a bald waggle. This is KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Mudrooms on September 12, 2023. The theme for the evening was sourdough and proceeds went to the Cancer Connection. Special thanks to Kunahiri Northern Light United Church, the Rookery and Copa for supporting the event. Thanks also to Alaska Robotics for hosting our website, mudrooms.org. And, of course, to KTOO for bringing each mudrooms to listeners like you. Join us on October 10th for our next show with the theme of Plan B. This program is a production of the Mudroom Storyboard. Alita Buss, Jeffrey Smith, Crystal Brulette, David Noon, Rich Maniak, Skylar Barrier, Kristen Rankin, and Summer Custer. Have a good night. <laughs>